0: Hello, everybody. My name is Jason West, and this is PodClass. Today's episode is brought to you by the Cal State Long Beach College of Education and Educational Leadership Department. Did you know that the Educational Leadership Department at Cal State Long Beach is home to not one, not two, but three advanced degree programs? One such program is the Educational Leadership Doctorate Program, a three-year program designed for working professionals in PK-12 and higher education who want to further promote social justice in urban educational settings. What's particularly unique about the program is that higher ed and PK-12 students take many of their courses together, cue the We Are Family theme song, and they do this so they can learn together how to address problems across the educational spectrum. The program prides itself on providing high levels of support and practical knowledge so that students graduate on time and make a difference in their jobs. Interested in applying, check out csulb.edu forward slash edld for dates and information. That's csulb.edu forward slash edld. Go beach, go teach, go lead. Today's tea is provided by Snapdragon and Thistle. Do you know where your teas come from? Don't worry, Snapdragon and Thistle does. Snapdragon and Thistle prides themselves on sourcing their teas ethically. They've eliminated those pesky middlemen. Damn you, middlemen. After the leaves are picked, your leaves only make two stops before landing at your front door. Y'all, two stops? I'm turning 40 later this year, and I have found that the older I get, the more stops and the more steps it takes me to do just about anything. Snapdragon and Thistle provides the best prices for premium, ethically grown teas so that both your taste buds and your conscience can enjoy your cup of tea. Snapdragon and Thistle is also offering Podcast listeners 10% off their next order. All you have to do is go over to snapdragonandthistle.com that's S-N-A-P-D-R-A-G-O-N-A-N-T-H-I-S-T-L-E dot com that's right I spelled that whole thing for you and enter the promo code MRWEST10 that's mrwesttea one Now, I realize I just threw a whole bunch of letters and numbers your way, but while you're processing everything I just gave you, let's just take a moment to bask in the fact that I have my very own promo code, y'all. My very own promo code for T. While we let that just sort of wash over and warm our hearts and souls, let's start the show. Hey, I am sitting here, as we typically do these days, over Zoom with Dr. Rashida Crutchfield. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So a quick rundown of your CV. Dr. Crutchfield is an assistant professor in the School of Social Work at Cal State Long Beach. She worked for the National Conference for Community and Justice in Long Beach and the American Civil, Civil Liberties Union of Eastern Missouri, and Covenant House, California, which is a LA-based shelter for 18 to 24-year-olds experiencing homelessness. Dr. Crutchfield, it's a pleasure to have you on the show.
1: Thank you for having me. I will say that I did get tenure in 2019, so I'm now an associate professor.
0: Oh, snap. I got to update my, uh, my intro. Associate, get that tenure. Well done.
1: Well, it's always nice to be able to say it out loud because I forget and then I remember and then I feel good about myself. So there's that.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's, I think that's the equivalent of being like, it's actually Dr. Presfield. <laughs> yeah. Well done. All right. I hope you are comfortable. You have your cup of tea.
1: I do. Thank you.
0: Excellent. Because before we get into today's show, I want to start with a quick segment we're calling Intersectionality. All right. Let's take a sip. Today we are drinking Iron Goddess of Mercy tea. This oolong tea has a what would be described as a well-rounded mouthfeel, if you will, Uh, and it provides flavors that are nutty, almost kind of like baked, and it's got a real nice heartiness to it. It it also gives off an aftertaste that's got these uh, subtle fruit and honey notes that really nicely balance the savory, nutty flavors of the tea. The Iron Goddess of Mercy tea definitely leaves you with a warm, almost autumnal feeling of satisfaction. Now, the origin myth of this tea is just as interesting as the flavor profile. The the myth goes that in Fujian, there was this rundown temple that housed an iron statue of Guan Yin. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Anyway, Guanyin was the goddess of compassion, and according to the story, a poor farmer would walk by the temple every day and think to himself, this is terrible. The temple shouldn't be in such dire shape. Something must be done. But like I said, he was poor, so he couldn't exactly repair or rebuild the temple. Instead, he brought his broom and some incense, and he began cleansing the temple and offering the incense to the goddess, thinking, you know, He's poor, but that's the least he could do. And then, of course, with all myths, he has this dream where the goddess tells him where to find this super secret tea, and that's the tea we're drinking today, where it's located, and he ends up finding it, growing it, selling it, and it makes him wealthy enough to support his village and to fully repair the temple. So, okay, you're probably wondering, why are we drinking this? Iron Goddess of Mercy tea today, right? Like, how does this intersect with education and personal identity? So, as we just heard, Dr. Crutchfield, the farmer in the myth saw the state of the temple and thought to himself, something must be done, right? And like the farmer, you were among the first to observe the crisis of food and housing insecurities among college students. So, I guess my first question to you is, how would you describe your origin story, if you will? What made you go, something must be done?
1: Hmm. That's my my origin story and something must be done. I think one of the things I want to say after listening to that really beautiful, rich story um, is that one of my passion clearly is to really find my niche in how I can address social problems, right? And there are so many, you have to sort of find your root and let it sprout. Um, And my origin comes from a lot of different places, but when I listened to that really rich story, it made me think about um, one of the things, one of my other passions is to dance and Um, I, for a long time, danced uh, in a Brazilian community, and um, it's not so much the real style samba that you imagine with bikinis and high heels, it's more Afro-Brazilian samba with long white skirts, and one of the deities in Condomble is Oshu, who is the goddess of um, honey and love.
0: Wow, I swear I did not pre plan this this is amazing please continue
1: yeah and she is um has warmth and beauty and she laughs and she loves but she also has a warrior she is a warrior and her warrior side is named Apara, and apara is ferocious and and so that all resonates for me right in this like um Spiritual and 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 physical sense. So I really appreciate that. Um, in terms of my history, though, um, my parents, in their own ways, uh, were active in addressing social justice. My father uh, was a journalist. He was pulled in out of college in the middle of college because there were no Black reporters at the time that he was studying journalism in Pittsburgh, which would have been... um, Oh, I'm going to age him. But it was at a time where clearly racial
0: justice was... It started with (laughs) 19 and ended with yada, yada.
1: (laughs) ...needed to be represented. And so he uh, has always had a passion for seeking information and telling narratives and giving information to the public. My mother... Uh, is a retired teacher. She was a high school teacher. um, And she largely was a teacher in school districts that were under-resourced, like the one where I came from, which was the Detroit public school system. And she was passionate about making sure that her students were educated in the way that they deserved. And so I think definitely, you know, my roots are there with my parents. Um, fasting, fast forward, as you said, I worked for Covenant House California, um, which is a part of a national organization, but I was here in Los Angeles, and we had a resident at Covenant House who was going to a community college, and um, this would have been in, say, 2007, 2006, actually. Ooh lifetimes. So <laughs> maybe in 2006, she, like other residents, was, were going to a community college and she came across a financial aid administrator. And she was trying to explain to the financial administrator that she could not provide her parents' tax information for her FAFSA or uh, the free application for federal financial aid. And the financial aid administrator responded to by saying, well you know, well, we're going to need those or you can't come to school this semester. And she said, well, I'm homeless and I'm not connected to my parents. And the financial aid administrator said, well, you don't look homeless and you're probably just arguing with wow. your parents and you need to go talk to them. And, you know, for for this financial aid administrator, I know lots of really amazing financial aid administrators, but I know that in 2006, the law didn't protect students who were homeless, who were experiencing homelessness. Um. And our institutions of higher ed were not prepared for them. It wasn't, and I don't think it was about um, purposeful exclusion, but people were not, you know, had no idea. You know, I I remember the first time I went to Encore in 2009, um, I was walking around and folks were asking what I was thinking about studying. And I said, I'm thinking about studying homelessness and higher ed. And so many people said, whoa, we don't have that. And I thought, mm, I bet you do. <laughs> yeah. And so I had the opportunity for my um, dissertation in the EDD program at California State University, Long Beach, uh, under the guidance of Dr. Don Haviland, to study this and get involved and get engaged, both in terms of really exploring, um, exploring, the experiences of students and understanding how we can, in higher education, address their needs.
0: So you've been doing this for a while, based on kind of the the math that you just gave me. You did your dissertation, what, about 11 years ago? So maybe like 12, 13 years ago is when you started getting into this?
1: Wow. Oh, um...
0: <laughs> not, not to put a fine point out, but <laughs> I, I just... Sure, I imagine. Sure. I just imagine you've learned a lot about food and housing insecurities in that time, but I'm wondering if the last 13 or so months of this pandemic has in any way changed our perspective on food and housing insecurities.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think even though, I mean, I finished my dissertation in 2012 and we, um, I, along with my colleague, Dr. Jennifer McGuire, who's at Humboldt State, did the CSU study uh, on basic needs. So we explored what was happening for our students at all 23 of our campuses. And we learned a lot in that process. We learned that um, almost 11% of our students had experienced homelessness within a year, Um, many of them were couch surfing or moving from place to place because they didn't have a fixed or reliable or adequate place to stay. And some of our students were living in cars, living in storage units. um,
0: Now, I want to ask you really quickly about that because, Mm -hmm. you know, in in the K through 12 world, we look and we see something like 8% of students are homeless or experiencing homelessness but i'm very suspicious of that statistic because it is a self-reported statistic and how we define what homelessness is seems to be very different based on who you ask you know some people will say no i'm not homeless i'm just staying at my cousin's house right now i'm not out in the streets mm-hmm. other people will say no i'm not homeless i I sleep in my car. I have a place to go. I'm not, in, you know what I mean? And so I'm I'm very wary of statistics like that because it's so, based on the honesty and awareness of the person, did you find that that was the case in the higher ed study that you did?
1: Yeah, I think that's a really important point to pin, Jason, because I think, um, I have heard people say those very same things as well. You know, I'm not homeless. I'm living in my car. My car is my home. I'm not homeless, right? There's a lot of stigma attached to that label.
0: Right.
1: Um, One of the ways that we try to maneuver that in terms of survey data is that we ask folks, um, have you been homeless or have you experienced homelessness? But we also ask them, have you ever lived in any of these places? Your Mm. car your, you know, a storage unit, a place not meant to uh, have, you know, be habitable. And so it's really interesting. We do see a lot of people marking no to homelessness, but yes to living in a car. Right?
0: Interesting,
1: yeah. Um, and there is research uh, connected to, you know, the larger homelessness population that says that when someone takes on the label of homelessness, that can have a negative cognitive um, impact on a person. Yeah. So, and it, Which is, for me, a really important lynch point to flag because so much of the support that we want to give folks requires that they take on that label. And yeah. so a lot of the work that we're doing at, at, in the CSU is really not doing that, not re-traumatizing folks as they're seeking support. But I think still, you know, I, I definitely think that it's likely an undercount, right? I'm an academic, so I'm not really allowed to say that. But um, I think we have, if we really unpacked this at a variety of levels, we would see those numbers shift.
0: So I, I, I apologize. I took us a bit on a on a detour. So you're 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 doing this study. You're you're finding what you found, and based on everything that you've learned and looking at the numbers that are coming in now, have has our perspective shifted mm-hmm. because of the pandemic? Yeah,
1: it was a fun detour, but let's go back to it. Right. <laughs> um, so. You know, we had those experiences for students and a lot of students uh, were working one, two, sometimes three jobs, along with going to school full time, trying to make ends meet and trying to get to graduation. With the pandemic, um, Jen and I collected more data over the summer because clearly we don't have enough to do. Um, Jen? (laughs) Jen is Jen McGuire up at Humboldt State. So she's my work wife. Really, she, we do a lot of this, uh, this work on basic needs together. Um, and so we uh, sent out surveys and did interviews and focus groups with students who were already getting uh, support from basic needs programs at four campuses, uh, Long Beach, Humboldt, Monterey Bay and Dominguez Hills. Um, and we asked students what's changed. Um, and we collected data I wanna say in July.
0: Mm.
1: And what we found was um heartbreaking. Um, you know, it and this was July, right? So in some ways that feels yeah. like hundred years ago, but it, it also what it was it really
0: does. Was, it was we were <laughs> we were not even at the full second wave. It, it we had no idea how he's no. gonna devolve. Still we, we,
1: We had no idea. We had no idea. And so the read about that. The weather
0: was still nice. Yeah.
1: yeah. And if students um, could go home, they did. Right. So Mm -hmm. some students, I think some people don't understand that. Sometimes students are homeless because their families can't afford to have them in the house. They, they may have loving connections with their families, but they can't afford to have them in the house. But some of those students might have gone back to those situations, whether that or not that was conducive to their best selves. Um, some students went back to places that didn't feel safe, but they had no place to go. Um, mm-hmm. For some folks that meant that their um, food security may or may not have leveled off. Like if we're right. now all in the house together, whether that's a good thing or not, we're pooling and doing our best by July. Right. And we also had cares act money coming in. Right.
0: Right, right, right.
1: Um, but as those things fall away, those safety nets fall away and So students, for some students, if they were working in the food industry, like if they were working in a grocery store, then they got more hours. Like they were still working, but they were more at risk for getting COVID. Right. Um, For many students, they lost those jobs, as did their parents. And so any safety nets really fell away. And so while... Uh, we have to still look at the food security piece. We saw rates of homelessness skyrocket amongst our participants. And that is just disturbing. It's just heartbreaking because many of them, you know, we're, were already moving from place to place, but in a pandemic, you can't move from place to place. You can't. Right be in your car one day and then decide to go to stay with this friend and go to stay with that friend, folks, you know, aren't allowing for that. And so it's just um, really difficult. It puts our students in a really difficult situation.
0: That's a point really well taken that I hadn't considered about this, you know, couch surfing culture that essentially gets eliminated or it just becomes real. Like you can stay here, but when it's time to go, it's time to go. Or, You can stay here and this is going to be tough because I don't want you to go out now with all of this. Any concerns that with rent being put on hold and it's just sort of lingering like a black cloud on the horizon that rates of homelessness are going to escalate in a way that we haven't seen in our lifetimes?
1: I really worry about that. Like, I really very seriously worry about that because I, I you know, we just collected new data, <laughs> again, because I don't have enough to do. Um, but we collected new data for a different study, and I heard that very story from a number of people, right? That, that I have this place to stay, but we haven't been paying rent, and I know it's coming, and I just don't know what I'm going to do. Already, our students worry about... Um, you know, the debt that comes with education. Um, I mean, many students who experience homelessness will be eligible for Pell and other grants that will cover their tuition, but housing um, and food and other expenses, health expenses, those things are not covered. And so now with the potential for back rent loading up, I I know that um, there's a lot of fear.
0: Yeah. I want to sort of bring this back to education and something that's been kind of on my mind is the homelessness, the food and housing insecurities that we're seeing in higher ed. Is this an issue that's directly connected to the inequities we currently have in education or does it appear to be more of like a parallel problem?
1: No, there's, is, I mean, going back to the beginning, right? This is the intersection, right? Mm-hmm. Because um, we see ad- academic or education, a- educational gaps. Um, and then COVID highlights the health gaps um, and the access to resource or lack thereof. Um, students who experience homelessness are far more likely to be people of color To be low income, to have former foster uh, or foster care history, um, be undocumented. Um, I definitely, you know, you know, I'm highly focused on addressing this need of homelessness, but I'm very clear that this is an equity issue. Mm -hmm. Very clear that this is a racism issue. I'm very clear that it is a sexual homophobia or or, um, an issue around sexual um, identity and how we value or devalue people. Mm. Um, This is a symptom of much deeper problems. But as I say that, sometimes when I start talking about these things, I get to, I get really careful about talking about larger social problems because I think some of us start to then back away. Like, well, if it's all of that stuff, then we can't do anything about it. And you're
0: so overwhelmed that you're like, so what is, you know, like when you find out about the planet warming at such a rapid, you're like, well, I'm a a person. I like it. I I, sure I can recycle, but does that really? Yeah. Like I I, I hear it definitely gets overwhelming.
1: Yeah. But, but, and, and, but I think there are, there are clear avenues for us um, as systems, as educators, Mm -hmm. the micro and the macro level. There's a lot of opportunities for us to address this issue. And we, must continue to have that lens of understanding that this is an equity issue and it's a part of an intersectional approach. And and it's a trauma-informed approach that we have to really think about the full um, holistic view of human beings and how we have to be um, valued in many different ways.
0: So then with that in mind, what are some practices that K-12 districts or universities can put in place to reduce or eliminate this growing issue?
1: Mm. Well, you know, the K-12 system is way ahead of higher education Mm. um, because, you know, the K-12 systems at least have McKinney-Vento liaisons, right? That we have in place funded folks whose job is to seek out families and children who are experiencing these issues. Now, those valiant iron warriors don't have enough resources, like um, because we, it is, as you said, um, so often self-report or our, our staff and our teachers have to be attentive and know the signs mm-hmm. and connect and con- connect in a way that doesn't drive folks to hide because there's a lot of fear, right? Like if I'm a parent and I'm homeless and I'm with my child, I may not know that the law does, it does not allow for someone to take my child away because I'm homeless.
0: Or if you're undocumented.
1: Right. And so, you know, making sure that we reach families to make sure that they know that we will support them. Mm -hmm. Um, Like that's hard work. And, and often McKinney Vento liaisons are one person for way too many children and families, right. Mm -hmm. Or or a group of folks um, that are trying to
0: be the case, by the way, for any type of resource for children, it's the ratio of the resource to the people. It's like your teacher one to 35, 40 more counselor one to two to 500. It's just, it's wild how these, these singular people are expected to hit every single one of them and it eats you alive when you miss them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think about, I think about the folks that I know who are doing this kind of work. Like I uh, was a part of uh, an initiative that was led by Dr. Erin Simon, who also got her doctoral degree in our EdD program, um, who really was supportive of so many people and bringing people together to, to develop resources for children and families. And I, um, I see it and I want, and I want, folks like her to be um, supported in ways that can be expansive, right? Because it, it, it can't be a small group of people. It really has to be a systemic approach. Okay, all of that said, K-12 is still way ahead of us in higher ed, right? Like yep. we're waking up uh, <laughs> with our morning tea, realizing that students are experiencing homelessness. And I, um, I think that we in higher education have to be incredibly brave. Um, and I and I'm clear that we are fortunate in the CSU because our our former uh, chancellor Timothy White knew that when he funded this research that that then <laughs> that research becomes a you know it's it's like a sword to yeah. come to the CSU and say hey look you have to be responsive to this and I think that leadership where, that says, I'm going to elevate this issue knowing. <laughs>
0: yeah. Here's the, here's the knife to plunge into my back, please. Into,
1: into, or my, or my face. My, <laughs> my chest. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I just know that we have to be incredibly brave um, and really elevate what we know to be true and then respond and then resource that response, right? So um, all of our CSUs have a food pantry, and I think that's great. Um, What I love even more is um, a serious state investment like um, our state legislature has um, given Uh, funds millions of dollars to the CSU, the community colleges, and the UCs for um, rapid rehousing programs, right? So rapid rehousing is a program that has been used uh, to address homelessness outside of higher ed that really puts housing first, so gets people into housing as quickly as possible, and then adds case management as a wraparound support for folks who are experiencing homelessness. Because the problem isn't just, I don't have a home. The problem is all of these other things that we've been talking about that has made housing out of reach for me. And so these rapid rehousing programs for me are uh, not like emergency housing, which is like, okay, let's get you off, of, off, you know, into a safe space right now. But, you know, a couple of weeks from now, we're going to have to figure out where you go. Rapid rehousing is long-term. Uh, it subsidized house, subsidizes housing until students um, can pay their own rent. Um, mm-hmm. and, it's, and it's really, you know, then the, the handoff is for students into state you know long-term stable housing. That for me is is the way to go. And I'm looking to see a deeper investment in things like that, sustainable growth.
0: In your research, have you come across any exemplary models of ways communities are combating this issue?
1: Mm. Well, I was, well, Hoveness Inc. Uh, is a great organization. They are community based program that addresses homelessness for youth, and they are working collaboratively with Long Beach State to do this rapid rehousing program. So we have uh, Jill on our campus who is um, meeting students who exp- who are experiencing homelessness and referring them to Hoveness, and then our Hoveness staff then are moving students into housing. Like that is the seamless, um, approach, and then we stay with them. We, you know, the the staff continue to support those students until they can, you know, afford to stably house themselves. I was just on the phone with Dr. Dilsey Perez, who um, is at Cerritos College, and they are doing an amazing work. They um, purchased Uh, land and they have a village where students are living students who were experiencing homelessness are now stably housed I think you know for community colleges often you know like at the at the CSU's if we have on-campus housing we at least have that emergency bridge but for community colleges they don't have housing but Cerritos also just has this amazing um set of opportunities Compton College also uh with uh, Dr. Keith Curry, president, has found a number of different ways to support students around um, housing. And I think it is these brave folks who step forward and say, it's not just that we should do it, but we have to do it. And then they create these programs.
0: You mentioned the housing village. And I have an extremely ignorant question. And the Comparison might not be uh, appropriate, so forgive me if it's if it's way off. And feel free to just you know slam <laughs> slam me down, be like, no, you're wrong. Here's why. But I'm wondering. At one point, I was uh, an AP coordinator, meaning I was in charge of all of the students who were taking APs and overseeing the courses and all that. And I had inherited a tutoring center that the district wanted to. Have it like it funded for the students who are struggling with their AP courses. Typically, it was their first class, and you know, things like that. But people didn't really go because there was a stigma of if I'm caught in there, then everyone will know that I can't hang. Mm-hmm. And so, what I did was I created what had then become called the AP Cafe. And it was just kind of a place to hang out. And, you know, you could also get tutoring or you could do group work. It's just kind of everyone is there together, whatever, whatever. Nobody knows what you're here for. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that created a lot more traffic. And I'm wondering if things like the housing village that you describe, does that carry a stigma? Or is it just so essential to survival that people are willing to just go regardless?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I think there is something to addressing stigma, right? Like we've talked about that earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, My friend, um, Dr. Jeff Claus at Long Beach State, um, when we talk about CalFresh enrollment, which many people think of as food stamps, right? Uh, Colloquially, we call CalFresh food stamps. And he says, you know, this is a food scholarship nobody's nobody's afraid to get a scholarship.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: So, so we have to um, how you market it. It is how you market it in some ways.
0: Tutor uh, versus AP cafe
1: Yeah, and I think that and just like similarly, when I talk to students about you know when I first started talking to students about them going to food pantries on campus, um, sometimes they start talking about being nervous about it. And often if the campus is doing what they should be doing, students say, well, no, it's fine. Everybody goes there. You know, and, and that's what I want to hear, right? Yeah. I think that sometimes folks worry that students will just want food for free. And so, you know, it stops us from 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 wanting to support. Right. Maybe somebody will get something they they haven't earned,
0: and it's like, who cares?
1: Who cares? Exactly.
0: <laughs> like if they feel the need to go there because they need, go. they need they they know what it's for, but they're like, no, I'm going to go and get free food even though I don't need it. Yeah, there's something that within them that does need it.
1: Yeah, well, and I think just in general, anything that we, where we're addressing um, oppression and class and and wealth, we we always going to make folks who need break their backs and pay and beg right you know, like with welfare right. um, yeah. with penef you know with
0: unemployment with,
1: we we want to make people hurt but if 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 wealthy folks need something then that's that's a whole nother thing and i think yep. we we have the opportunity to really fundamentally rethink um, how we approach the disparity in this country but that all said I find that first students, generally speaking, are not gonna go to the food pantry if they don't need it, one, and two, the students who do need it over and over and over again say, I go and I get what I need, but I could have gotten more, but I didn't because I wanna make sure that someone else has it if they need it, over and over again. I will listen to a student tell me they're living in their car and they're eating a meal and a half a day and will still say, well, yeah, I could have applied for $500 for that emergency grant, but I applied for four because that's all I needed. And I want to make sure that somebody else had it. Wow. And so I think it's important um, on many levels for us to re- reconsider our preconceptions. But back thinking about the village, I think one of the great things about the model is that we don't get away students. We don't separate out yeah. students. Right, and say, okay, this is where the homeless people mm-hmm. live, right? Like yeah. this is a home just like anywhere else. It's on a street just like anyone else's. And we incorporate folks into our neighborhoods because they are our neighbors. Even the people who live on the street in my neighborhood are my neighbors. They are residents of my neighbors. Mm-hmm. And if we um, treat them as such, then then we are better for it as well as well as
0: our whole communities hmm. you've talked about universities you've talked about staff faculty things like that yeah, people like that i should say you've talked about government i guess my question i'm struggling with is do you believe that this issue should be addressed directly by a school district or a university or government? Like who ultimately do you think should shoulder the bulk of the responsibility for meeting the needs of these vulnerable students?
1: Well, we, we really have to, I'm thinking about the Kresge foundation cause I'm, 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 I'm working to partner with the Kresge foundation right now and they're Uh, one of their giving focuses is addressing urban higher education ecosystems. And I really love that language because um, it really acknowledges that it can't be one set of shoulders, Mm -hmm. right? Higher education is really good at educating students and it can be good at building community for students and, and being an anchor and a safe place for students as they grow Um, socially, mentally, academically. Um, And we are not housing experts. So we have to partner with agencies. And those agencies can be like individual agencies like Joveness, but it also can be county agencies like CalFresh, right? And, and, and the state has to invest in higher education as a whole Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: in these specific needs. And we can't do it without the federal government uh, either because we really have to address our student loan debt. I would love to see meal programs for students in higher ed just like we have in K-12. And we have to think about the real price of college including in, inclusive of housing.
0: Hmm. So okay, I like that idea that you know you you can't play the symphony without all of the musicians. It's not just like a one solo for the whole thing. So then I'm going to shift that question and ask do you where do you believe systemic change should really begin? Is is there a clear first step to take or is it kind of like untangling Christmas lights? Like, you know, just start somewhere and work your way through?
1: Um, well, hmm. I think you have to find your lane, right? Mm-hmm. I think that different places, different institutions are in different, are at different points, right? I um. think we on campuses have to determine who are the people who can be motivated to to make all of this happen. And we have to then bring folks to the party. We have to welcome people into that. Because if I, when I first started this, when I first did the, the first phase of the CSU study, and you know, my job was to ask staff, faculty, and administrators and some students what they thought about this issue. Like, did it exist?
0: Mm.
1: Is, is it real?
0: Yeah, I guess that would be a good starting point <laughs> for people to acknowledge its existence.
1: Yeah. And I was, I was clear it was real, but I wanted to find out what other people thought. Yeah. And what I found was that for the, well, there were some folks who were really like, this is not real. Or if it is real, it's not our problem. There was a small group of folks who were very clear that this was not the job of higher education. Then over here, we had folks who were um, really starting to move the dial, right? So we had Jessica Medina at Fresno State who had, um, started an amazing food pantry there. We had Jeff Klaus at Long Beach State who'd pulled together a committee of folks to figure out what we were gonna do. There were, you know, there were programs in San Bernardino, right? But then there was this huge middle group of folks who were like, yeah, I'm a faculty person, I or I'm a staff and I keep apples and and protein bars in my desk because I know students are hungry. Or I I, you know, don't tell anybody, but I took this student home and they've been living on my couch because I knew they were homeless. And I don't know what to do on the large scale, but I'm doing what I can. And so once we had momentum, we could bridge those links with people and then make that movement, right? I really feel like this has to happen at many different levels. There have to be folks like uh, Debbie Rauscher with uh, John Burton Advocates for Youth J-Bay who are doing advocacy in the California State Legislature. There's gotta be Barbara Duffield who's doing work at the in the federal government. But there also has to be Jessica Medina at Fresno working on a food pantry and there's gotta be um, you know, all kind of folks in the trenches making it work. It's It really has to happen at multiple levels. I just think more, more often than not, if we're working in a vacuum where we think we're alone, then then the, t- the time really is to build your family, build your bridges um, and, and make those connections and find your avenue and then run down it.
0: Yeah, mm. that's... It's so depressing and it could probably be connected to so many other problems that we have in the world that the first step to solving those problems is to get everyone to agree that they exist. Mm-hmm.
1: I think, um, I, you know, I kind of think... It, it is a little depressing. I mean, I, I'm trying not to say this so much anymore, but I have been quoted over and over again that higher education discovered homelessness like Columbus discovered America. Like, there that, were people here already. It was not a discovery, right? So I mean, we that. are waking up and understanding. And, and a part of it is really depressing because it, it, I've you know, I did feel despair when I heard um, very senior administrators in universities saying, this is not my job. This is not our job. We really need to, you know, sideline this. And I I felt real despair. And yet, really, that was 2016, it is now 2021. That's five years. And in, 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 in the CSU, we have huge momentum. We have done so much. And in the life cycle of university systems, five years is not that long.
0: Right. All right, but then before I let you go, uh-huh. I'm going to ask you for a prediction. Yeah. Five, year, five years from now, is the crisis of food and housing insecurity better, worse, or the same?
1: Ooh, that's a tough question. I, I feel like we as a country are going to have to do quite a lot of healing because we are figuratively and literally sick right now Mm. Um, we are dealing with this pandemic and we're hoping that it's getting better um, but we don't know and we have to work as a community to make sure that it does get better Um, as a black woman you know I've heard many black folks say you know if white folks have a cold then black folks have the flu right Mm. and I would say that there there's a clear parallel here to students who lack basic needs and are experiencing homelessness. So if we can get those of us who have access to supports can get ourselves well, we, we also have to make sure that folks who are struggling even harder get well as also, right? And so I would say that Um, I feel like we are on an upward turn in terms of campus responses and community responses and legislative responses to this issue. I feel clear that we have direction that we know where we can head. We have to choose it. And if we do choose it, it will get better.
0: Okay. So we've sadly come to the end here. Uh, I've, you know, it's been, it's a heavy topic, but I've really enjoyed myself. I could uh, talk with you about this uh, for hours. I, you know, at some point, I'll, I'll definitely want to bring you back on the show to continue this conversation. But I'd be remiss if I didn't also say that this was low key my favorite part of the show, because <laughs> this is the part where I really get to know not just about your work, but about. You, the person, not just the creator of white papers and, you know, the uh, inciting incident for change in our culture. I get to know about you, the person. Mm -hmm. A segment that I like to call extra credit. Mm. So what I'd like you to do, please, if you wouldn't mind, is I'd like you to offer the pod class audience an extra credit assignment that they should accomplish before the next episode comes out, let's say. It could be a certain book to check out. Uh, It could be a movie type of music. And you know what? If you want to give them a long-term assignment of like, hey, travel to this country if you can, or try this type of food when we're able to go to these types of restaurants, you know what? This is your show now. You get to make the rules for what extra credit is what is an extra credit assignment you'd like to give the podcast?
1: Oh, and my students would say I'm always going to be too much. Too much and I <laughs> Ex- will not.
0: extra as my yeah, extra, say. Extra. yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, since we were talking about samba, I want to invite everyone to go listen to say Georgie who is an amazing artist from Brazil. Um, I also I'm going to get to two books, but first I want to say, you know, from from what we were talking about earlier, one of the things that I've been hearing too often is folks saying, you know, I see the problem now. And we have been talking about the civil unrest around, Black, you know, Black Lives Matter, and right now with Asian Asian um, Asian and Asian American communities under attack, a lot of folks are hyper aware that. Um, Again, these are symptoms of ongoing problems, and a lot of the response can be, well, I just don't know what to do. And I think that that is a very human response. And I think if if that is the first thing you say and then you do do something, that's great. But if you say that and then it ends because there's analysis paralysis, that's not good enough.
0: Or you just expect points for... Identifying,
1: for saying, yeah, for saying, I just said I want to do like that's not good enough. So I want to invite folks um, to reach out to find your lane. There are plenty of things to read, um, but go you know, like connect with an organization like the California Conference for Equality and Justice that does all kinds of workshops to really get folks thinking and energized and, and figuring out where their lane is to move. So do that, find your first start. And then I have two books.
0: But oh, you really um, do have two books. That You you are extra, I as kidding. you have to say.
1: I wasn't kidding. So I'm re- I'm rereading Teaching to Transgress by Bell Hooks. And so she's, um, as... Some people used to say giving me life. And then the my newer, this is my homework, which is The Prophets by Robert Jones Jr. I'm hearing fantastic things about that. So there's the homework.
0: All right, so extra credit. Extra credit,
1: extra credit.
0: Because as as we know, a student might not have a home to go to, therefore. So two books to read, Mm -hmm. a musician to listen to, Yes. And uh, a cause to take on.
1: That's right.
0: These are, I think, very worthy. Uh, it, Michelle Obama came up instead of the food pyramid, the, the plate, so that you can have an even amount of fruits, vegetables, proteins, grains, things like that. I think you've done a nice thing uh, filling the, the, the plate for extra credit. So thank you so much. Thank you for coming on the show. It's a pleasure to have you.
1: It was great talking to you. I re- this is fun. Thank you.
0: Okay, that is our show. I want to thank our very special guest, Dr. Rashida Crutchfield, for joining us. And thank you, my pod mates for listening. If you'd like to follow Dr. Crutchfield and her work, she can be found on Instagram at Rashida Crutchfield and on Twitter at Rashida Crutch. If you enjoyed today's show, don't be a stranger. Reach out. Let me know. I can be found on all social media platforms with the username at TeachMeMrWest, I can also be reached via email at podclasspod that's podclasspod at gmail.com One more thing. Have you enjoyed this show? If so, I'd really appreciate it if you could go to wherever you get your podcasts and go ahead and give the show a five-star rating and maybe even a little review if it's not too much trouble. If reviews aren't your thing, maybe tell a few folks, you know, subscribe to the show. Look. Dr. Crutchfield just gave us a lot to think about in terms of food and housing insecurities, but what about the insecurities I have as a person? How are we going to address those, huh? How will I be able to measure my value and attach a sense of self-worth unless you flood the review section of my podcast with an abundance of compliments? What, you think I'm going to just take a step back and look at my life and see the humble yet important work I do as an educator or the beautiful, healthy, and brilliant children I'm raising and think... This is all I need to know my self-worth? What are you, some kind of new-age guru? No, I need some of that sweet, sweet nectar of five-star reviews from total strangers. Look, it'll take 30 seconds of your time and you'll feel good about being so nice, but more importantly, I'll feel good for about 10 minutes until one of my students reminds me that I am balding and aging at a very alarming rate. Okay, this was good. I think we had a really nice honest conversation at the end here. Until next time, podcast class dismiss.